Cannonball, the podcast at our Phoenix studios from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, my friend, Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, Chuck Ryback. How's it going, Chuck? Things are going great. How about with you? Uh, still going great. It is actually still been, going great. yeah, approximately 30 minutes since we had this conversation last time. Not much has changed other than... I had listened to a great interview with Cliff that I yeah. loved. Uh, Are you feeling any better? Like, you know, sometimes things can turn in 30 minutes. Just wondering if you're feeling better. No, I am not. I feel oh. the same as before physically. Yeah. So emotionally I am improved because, because of the great interview. So, yeah, and I, I think you know, the second half of the podcast will actually turn things around for you. I hope so. You know, the other thing that's happening tonight that I should have mentioned before is that my kids are they have uh, vaccination appointments this afternoon. So that's amazing. This is a day I've been waiting for, for a very, very long time. Um, both that's of them great. are, you know, good sports about it, but neither of them are very excited for the shot. So there is yeah. that to contend with. I get my booster today. Do you? I yeah. Well, cool. Maybe I'll see you there. Yeah. You, you, may, have to, to it. you may have to talk <laughs> my youngest off a ledge if you can do it. So, all right. Um, Excellent. Let us get to our guest. Now, remember, we are back for part two of our conversation with Dr. Cliff Ganyard. This time, we're going to be talking about the works that inspired him. So by way of reminder, he's an associate professor of history and humanities, earning his degrees, all of them, uh, including his PhD from SUNY at Buffalo. He researches and teaches about German and European history and culture, American history, science fiction, and jazz. He's a fabulous teacher. He won the UWGB Founders Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2010 at the Board of Regents Teaching Excellence Award in 2014. Um, and he is also giving the keynote address at this year's Common Cause Conference on Conspiracy Theories. It's Dr. Cliff Ganyard. How are you, Cliff? I'm doing well, gentlemen. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. I so enjoyed uh, our last conversation about this. That was really, really fun. I actually wrote in my notes how much I want to learn more about um, some things like Civil War history, things like that, that uh, it's been a while since I really, uh, yeah, uh, read anything or saw any movies on or anything like that. So, so I asked you in advance to uh, give some thought to the works that inspired you and you had a, a what felt like a clear favorite. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, so this is a really great question, you know, to, to think about what kinds of things inspire us. And, and Ryan, you had said, you know, be broad, it could be music or film or, or what have you. Um, and there's a lot I could talk about. But one thing that as I thought about it more and more, one of the kind of touchstones for my career uh, has been Eric Maria remarks all quiet on the Western front. And so I, you know, I would kind of point to that as one of the things that's really influenced, influenced me and um, it, it hasn't determined my path, but it, it certainly had a strong influence on uh, where I went academically and professionally. So, so let's, um, I got sort of two questions for you about this. First is if you could provide a, a synopsis for listeners who aren't familiar with it, but also I, I think the, the thing I'm really interested in is when you encountered it mm -hmm. and you know, what, what was going on for you at the time that you read it and why it became so influential to you but don't spoil the ending right so um yeah so a synopsis so this this is a great novel it's often been touted as the greatest war novel uh, of history um which i could 
complicate a little bit if we want to go into that. But it's essentially about a, a young German man, Paul Boimer, uh, who is a high school student uh, at the beginning of the novel. And he's convinced uh, to join uh, the army during the First World War, uh, the German army. And so he and his entire class, in fact, sign up for, um, for the, the army uh, in 1914 uh, at the beginning of the First World War. And the rest of the novel then falls, follows Paul uh, and his classmates as they move through the war and their experiences. Um, and it's a very, in a lot of ways, it's a very honest novel. It is a very graphic novel. Uh, it, there is a lot of gore uh, and um, violence that happens. There are incredibly striking uh, but beautiful scenes in it. Uh, Chuck, you'd mentioned earlier about Terrence Malick. I'd love to see a Terrence Malick um, film about the First World War, that kind of idea of po poetry with visual images It'd would be, be remarkable. Um, and it's, it's largely a very negative novel. And so I don't want to give too much away as, as Chuck just uh, gave me the injunction not to, right? But it's about, it's about a terrible catastrophe of the First World War. It's about violence and death. Um, and so Paul encounters all of these things as he moves through uh, the First World War. He experiences trench warfare. He experiences artillery bombardments. Uh, he encounters, you know, the death of his friends and classmates. Um, he deals with, um, you know, the bureaucracy and the nationalism of his school, of the state, um, and all of these kinds of, uh, of things. He witnesses the destruction of nature, um, for example. And then it's punctuated by these, you know, rather philosophical reflections on politics, nature, uh, humanity, um, some of which people were critical of uh, later on. Um, but it's really a, an incredible portrait um, of humanity, both in its tragedy and its beauty. Um, it's a tragic novel, but it's, in my opinion, it's also a very beautiful novel. Um, and if you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. It's not uplifting. It won't make you feel good. <laughs> um, but it's an important novel. Uh, and it, it does tell us something true about history and humanity. So as far as where I um, encountered it, I don't remember when I first heard about Remark. It's such a famous novel that I know I, I heard about it in high school classes and history and English classes and so forth. But, uh, I actually read it in um, one of the courses that made me decide to, to study history. Um, and this was... Professor Orville Murphy's Western Civilization II. Um, and so this is a broad, you know, uh, history course, 100 level history course that covers, uh, I think it was 1500 to, you know, whatever year it was when I was taking it, 1987 or 1988 or something like that. Um, and in fact, all of the books that Professor Murphy assigned um, became kind of touchstone for me. One of the others that was really important was, um, Voltaire's Candide, which is another beautiful novel. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between Candide and, and Remark. Um, but I encountered it there. And that's one of the courses, uh, as I mentioned in our previous conversation, that convinced me that I wanted to study history um, as a profession. Uh, and this book, in no small part, played a role in that, uh, in thinking about, you know, what was the First World War like? 
what impact did it have on Germany? What impact did it have on uh, the people who experienced it? Um, and so th that kind of led me into studying history. So Chuck, have you read this? I have, yeah. I've, I've taught the book. When I taught high school, you know, you're sort of, the books that you're able to assign are the books that are in the giant room and have all the books in it. And at that time, I, I was lucky enough that they had All Quiet on the Western Front. And so we did, we did read that. It's amazing. I have not. Um, and I can't really speak to why. Uh, I don't think it, I, well, mainly because I don't think any class I ever took assigned it. Um, and then it just has been not off my radar, but not like fully on my radar or something. It, it's a film as well, right? Or no? It's been filmed a couple of times. Most famously, it was filmed um, the year after it was published. This is how powerful the novel was. Um, it was serialized in a newspaper in 1928 and then published as a, as a novel, as a book in 1929. And the following year, it was made as a movie, so in 1930. And, and it, it won one of the first Oscars for Best International Film. Um, so, yeah, it was incredibly powerful, incredibly popular. In fact, it kicked off a whole war boom um, at the time. And there had been some reticence about kind of reflecting and confronting the First World War in the early 1920s. It was such a catastrophic event that most people just wanted to forget it. Um, there were a few novels, a few histories, a few films that came out, uh, but they were only moderately successful. But Remark's novel was so powerful that it just kicked off a whole boom. Suddenly there were dozens of novels and memoirs coming out. Films were coming out. There were parodies of Remark's novel that were written. Um, and it, it really set, up, set alight this, this interest uh, in the First World War. Um, so that was the first film. It was also filmed in the late 1970s or 19, early 1980s. Um, with, uh, oh, I've forgotten the actor's name. It was John Boy from The Waltons. You guys yeah, remember who that Waltons, was? Yeah. yeah. And Ernest Borgnine. Um, and it's a far inferior, in my opinion, it's a far inferior version of the film. The 1930 version is, is really powerful. It follows the novel very well. Um, and it may have actually been filmed another time. But those are the two that, I, that I'm aware of. I mean, Cliff, I think of my, the scene that I remember the most in that book is always, it's weird, I think, because it's, I just don't think it's one that many other people would focus on, but it's always kind of stuck with me is when Paul comes back from the front mm -hmm. and he goes, if I get it right, like he's pretty much like in a beer garden or something and he's talking to a bunch of older men and it just sort of, hammered home for me like the generational nature of war in a way that doesn't seem like has disappeared that it's a very generational thing that um you know i was i'm saying this because i was in a meeting yesterday where somebody was talking about how there's not enough intergenerational relationships and thinking about that scene where he goes to this if i have it right cliff he goes there and the men are just telling him you know get out there and fight and like how glorious it is and he's just come back from this horrible place but that it that among other things that war also entrenches to use a metaphor good for the first world world war um entrenches generational differences am i, am I remembering that right or 
Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite parts too, is, is when he has leave and he goes home, right? And this is supposed to be this great escape from the tragedy of the front of the violence of, of war. And what he encounters uh, at home is this, this great divide, right? And you can read it a couple of different ways. So the generational difference, I think, is absolutely there. The many encounters in the beer garden, for example, all are older. They're not soldiers, obviously. So they have, you know, whatever dispensation. And it's a striking scene. Here's this guy who's literally been at the front fighting the war. And there's this group of men sitting at home, you know, far away from the front, telling him how the war should be conducted. Right. And so they talk about, they, they you know, it's, it's like an armchair quarterback. And they're talking about strategy. Oh, we need to do this or that or the other thing. There's a there's a moment when Paul tries to interject and said, well, this is what war is really like. And they immediately say, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, they almost literally tell him, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then they go on and say, oh, sure, sure, sure. You, you know, you see this small part of, of the front, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, and it's clear that, you know, in remarks telling, that, that these people have no idea what they're talking about. Um, and so that's both a generational difference, but it's also the difference between, you know, the, the soldiers themselves and what the experience of war is and those people who do not experience the war. And uh, this is also very much a, a part of, of the modern world, I think, this inability to understand um, what that experience was like. Um, you know, and Ryan, you'll appreciate this, but it's the First World War that gives us this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? It's, it's only after the First World War that psychology as a profession tries to confront and figure out how a traumatic experience like this can permanently damage somebody. And of course, people at home can't understand that. Uh, and so Remark is kind of depicting this, this unbridgeable gap generational, familial, gender um, that comes out of the war. You know, a bunch of reactions to what you just said. First is how sort of painfully relatable it is to think about the armchair uh, quarterbacks, um, you know, sort of evaluating, well, this is what you should do, right? You know, from from afar. Um, But also, you know, there's something, even before you mentioned the, the, traumatic, the, the PTSD part, there was something really interesting in the way you were talking about this book that I wonder if, if it's common for historians to, to think this way. And that's in, both today, excuse me, both in this episode, but also earlier when we were talking about what inspired you, you seem really interested in the impact of these events on individual human beings um, in a way that I resonate with as a psychologist. Um, I wonder though, is that, do you find that to be common for historians? Because I think the perception of historians is that we're interested in big events that happen and not necessarily the impact of those big events on the, on the, the everyday lives of people. But, but you strike me as thinking about it differently. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would characterize myself as being different from the historical profession as a whole, at least not now. Um, certainly there are historians who like to study big swaths of time. Uh, and these are important um, th- these are important sp- historical studies too, right? To try to understand what's the big narrative, what you know, what's the course of events over a long period of time, um, or to study things that are um, more um, distanced from human experience. So politics, 
economics, right? These kinds of, of things. These are all important topics. But since, um, uh, I don't know, probably the mid-70s or maybe a little bit earlier, there, there was this great shift in the way that historians thought about their discipline. Um, and there was much more interest in uh, social history, cultural history, gender history, class history, um, all of these kinds of things got a lot more focus uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and this kind of turned towards thinking about uh, what was the individual experience. Um, in German, there's a great phrase, this great long word, which is typical of German, called which means the history of everyday life. Um, and I think this is a good, uh, a good summary um, that was often left out of, of kind of traditional political and diplomatic and military history, was the, the individual actors were left out of it. Um, and so historians since then have really, uh, many historians since then have, have really kind of tried to understand what was the experience of ordinary people like. And it's been incredibly important. Um, so this has led to, you know, really great studies, for example, of um, what war was like, how did people experience war? Um, but it's also led to another book that was really influential on me was Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men, um, which is a historical study of a small group of men, a couple of hundred men, um, and their testimonies in the 1960s about their um, participation in the Holocaust in Poland. And so by focusing on this narrow group of people and trying to understand why they did what they did actually led to an incredible revelations and understanding of why the Holocaust occurred rather than just looking at, well, you know, what did, what were the official documents about why this event occurred? This really provided a depth of understanding uh, of what's going on. I mean, is that, Cliff, is that why would you say somebody like Hannah Arendt is really, she's somebody who I think has like an orbit, like a celestial body and she comes into prominence given current events and, but I, I can't, re you know, it's, this is embarrassing. I can't remember if she's a political scientist or theorist or a historian or, or She's a philosopher, else. actually. She was a philosopher. She, yeah, um, actually studied with Martin Heidegger. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, and but she does like to me. If I think about the banality of evil, which is a really important title to me, like if she's kind of going down that path in some ways that you're describing. It's the getting at something like World War II through the psychology of just this one single person of whom there are other, that there are many others who are just like that. I, do you, is that right? Yeah, to some extent. Um, Arndt can also be um, kind of a warning sign for that too. So that, that particular phrase, the banality of evil, is one that I, I talk about often in my classes. I do find it useful. But the, the unfortunate part is that um, she developed that idea while watching the Adolf Eichmann trial in Jerusalem and applied it to him based on his testimony. And so famously, Eichmann in that, in that trial was saying, I didn't kill anybody. I was just a bureaucrat. You know, I made the trains run on time. And of course, people rightfully criticized and said, yeah, you made the trains run right to Auschwitz. 
um, and so you are responsible for it. Right? But that idea of the banality of evil, that evil happens when good men do nothing, I think it's an important concept. The more recent scholarship, um, particularly by uh, Bettina Stagna, has shown that, in fact, uh, Eichmann was an incredibly duplicitous person and had spent the previous 15 years plotting to come back to Germany, overthrow the Federal Republic of, of Germany, and reestablish now a fourth Reich. I mean, he's an incredibly committed Nazi. Um, and so, you know, that, that's one of the problems when you, when you focus too narrowly. I guess is the way I would put it, you know, is that you can sometimes gain insight um, into individual actions, but you also need to be really critical um, about that person or those persons, right, to assess them carefully. This was one of the problems with, with Browning's work, too, is that was it too narrow? You know, did it not get at um, the, the true vision of what was happening? Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, there's some truth there, but we just need to be careful about mm -hmm. you know, whether we take it at face value. I think the thing I appreciate about it, because I think about that book a lot, is trying to demystify that all of these things that we've learned about in history that have been incredibly tragic and devastating are extraordinary. And therefore, although we talk about history and not wanting to repeat it, we sometimes send the message that the things that happened and the people involved are so different and so extraordinary that they won't repeat it. So I sort of, a, in terms of Arendt, like I, I appreciate that demystification that like somebody who's really good at scheduling can be a really deadly person in a different context, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the case with Browning's book too, right? I mean, he titles it Ordinary Men for a reason. These were about the, the most ordinary folks you can imagine. They tended to be a little bit older. They were from Hamburg. They were, you know, middle class business owners. They were the least likely group of people to be Nazis. In fact, very few of them had joined the Nazi party. And yet they were, they willingly engaged in the murder of Jews and Poles in Poland during the Holocaust. And so then that's the, that's the crux of the question. Why? Why would these people who are least likely to be Nazis do this? Uh, and what Browning gives then is a, is a very complex picture of, you know, there, there are lots of reasons for this. It's not just a single reason. Um, it's not just the ideology. They didn't just believe in anti-Semitism, but, you know, there was peer pressure and there was alcohol and there were, you know, all these circumstances um, that play into it. You know, if I, if I were to pick works that had been, exceedingly influential in my life. Eichmann in, Jeru in Jerusalem would be one of them. Um, that, that's one of those books I was exposed to in college. It's, it wasn't just really influential to me. It was so, so influential in my field, you know, with, with Stanley Milgram doing a lot of his work based on it, and, um, as well as Ash and others and conformity studies and things like that, that I've often found fascinating. Um, I'm curious, as we start to kind of wrap things up, I've been thinking about other war novels and i was curious to hear like what other recommendations might you have things that were influential to you in this area things that you just think are really good and, and can help people better understand uh this history i've i have long said that for me one of the best ways to learn about a culture one of the best ways to learn about history is through 
reading novels uh, or or nonfiction about the the time period. So, do you have recommendations for war novels? Um, sure, and actually, I'd like to hear Chuck's response to this too, because I think Chuck, you've actually taught a war and fiction course or something like that. I did not know I that know. either. Yeah. I, Chuck, I work with you every day. How is it that I'm learning so much about you from Cliff? No, I, uh, I did. I did a literature of war class. Oh, Because cool. I, I want to say I probably was in contact with Cliff for ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there, there are a lot, Ryan, that, are, that would be really good. I would actually point to a book I mentioned earlier, and that's Voltaire's Candide. Um, and Candide is, is not really about war per se, but the early chapters are about war in Prussia. Um, and he has really nasty things to say about war and their impact. Um, but there, there are lots of, of really good novels. In fact, um, the First World War uh, you know, has often been described as a literary war. The outpouring of novels and fiction and poetry from that war is just immense. Um, there's no way to cover all of it. Um, the, has a, a striking contrast to remark. Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel is kind of a classic uh, and takes a very different view of the war, much more positive. It's usually described as a much more positive view of the war. Um, or Robert Graves' all, um, Goodbye to All That, another classic from the British perspective. Uh, Henri Barbusse is Under Fire. These are all great novels about um, the experience of, of war and what it was like. Um, for other ones, uh, looking, just thinking about the Vietnam War, uh, Philip Caputo is A Rumor of War, which is kind of novel, kind of memoir. Caputo actually was a soldier in the war. And so his, his style of, of writing kind of um, blurs the boundary between fiction and an actual event. But it came out in 1965, I think, Chuck, or 66, so right at the beginning of the Vietnam War. But I remember that having a huge impact on me um, in the Vietnam War course I took because it was so descriptive of what actually happened. Um, another novel that I've taught recently uh, is by a North Vietnamese author by the name of Bao Ninh um, called The Sorrow of War. Um, which is about the Vietnam War, but from the enemy's perspective, right? The flip of what Caputo was talking about is absolutely phenomenal. Um, in fact, it reminds me a lot of Remark um, in that it's, an, again, it's an ordinary guy who finds himself in the army experiencing these terrible events and trying to come to terms with them. Um, and so it's, it's a really great novel as well. Um, I don't know, Ryan, I could go on and talk about this, this for a long time. Actually, the last one I'll, I'll mention, unless you guys want to follow up on any of them, is actually a science fiction novel um, by Joe Haldeman, and it's called The Forever War. And uh, you've, you've no doubt heard this phrase over the last few weeks about the forever war in response to Afghanistan. Um, Haldeman uh, was a soldier in Vietnam, went to war, experienced the war, uh, and then came back traumatized by it uh, and decided to try and deal with it by writing by writing and he's since gone on to become one of the most influential science fiction writers in the United States but this first novel was remarkable because it tried to depict the experience of war um, using science fiction terms 
And so it imagines a future world. And what would war be like trying to fight a war between worlds, between solar systems? And the only way you could do that, right, was with, um, you know, ships that could fly it near the speed of light. Well, the impact of Einsteinian physics is such that the person on the ship experiences time differently than people who are left behind on the planet, uh, and they age more slowly. And so over the course of the novel, much like Remark, Haldeman's character, you know, goes to war, fights the war, and then he comes home, and he finds a lot more time has passed at home. And over the course of the novel, I think there's a couple of centuries that pass. And so by the time the war is over, and uh, the character returns home, it's literally a different world from where he left. And this reminds me very much, Chuck, of, of the scene with Paul going back from the front and returning home and trying to confront his family and his friends and, and the distance between them. And so I, I love Haldeman's novel because I think it, it captures something about how soldiers experience war um, and how that experience you know, so removes them from the rest of society. I should probably give the caveat that I have not ever been a soldier myself. So I'm kind of guessing here, right? But it does seem to capture something that is very common. If you look at Remark or Bounin or Haldeman, um, and it's really a beautiful and, and powerful novel. Um, and, and Haldeman was very much anti, anti-war. Um, his novel was intended to be a, a stark criticism uh, of American involvement in, in Vietnam. So that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a great book. I love that book. Hey. What, what do you have, Chuck? What are your some of your recommendations in this area? Well, I'm glad Cliff went to science fiction. I, I would have one plug for a book of poetry called After the Lost War by Andrew Hudgens, which is follows the poet Sidney Lanier through the Southern poet through the Civil War pre, during, and after, and it's, it's just incredible. But um, for war novels, being, in the, being an English professor, I, I have to mention Tim O'Brien, who's done Tim the O'Brien. things they carried. But I, actually, the one that I love more and recommend more is a book called In the Lake of the Woods. Mm. So it's set in Minnesota. Um, oh but it's about a Vietnam vet who is running for U.S. Senate, and the—I mean, the, so this isn't a spoil. This isn't a spoiler, but heading into the campaign is when the story of the—I think it's pronounced Melee—the Melee massacre in Vietnam is sort of exposed, and he's a part of that. And the novel, anyway, is a really great um, sort of question of the self, like. We'd like to think we know what we're capable of, but are we sure that, and the reason that Tim O'Brien wrote this was that he was in the same company that was involved in the massacre, but a year after it occurred. And I think the novel arises out of his question, what if I had been drafted a year earlier or enlisted a year earlier, what would I have done and who would I have been? And it's just, it, and it's also a mystery. The book is a mystery. It is a page turner. Um, and if you're somebody who likes mysteries to be resolved, this might not exactly be for you, but it's one of the, it's say, one of the best books I've ever read. What, say the title again. 
in the Lake of the Woods. Okay. Which is yeah, a place, thanks. I guess, in northern Minnesota, Lake it of the Woods. It is indeed, yeah. Yeah, Chuck, thanks for bringing up O'Prien. I can't, I can't, I don't know why I didn't think to include him. You know, the, the Things They Carried is a fantastic novel. It's got one of my all-time favorite short stories in it, How to Tell a True War Story which again is about the difference in experiences between, um, between soldiers and, and uh, you know, people left on, on the home front. And I won't give it all away, but the, the ending of it has, O'Brien tells the story about his experiences and he struggles to try and explain what the experience was like. Uh, and at the end, somebody comes up, one of the people from the audience comes up and says, that was a great story about the war. And his response is, it, it wasn't a story about the war was a story about love mm -hmm. um, and you know that the relationship between soldiers and it's just really really powerful yeah the thing i love about him is that he he has such a reputation and is so loved just by regular people and readers he's not he's not so much an academic favorite you know in, in that sense like on the theoretical side like he is really a writer that reaches just sort of a general readership in a way that it's just really powerful. I've run into so many people who have read Tim O'Brien and just love him, like from all backgrounds, all different kinds of places. Well, I have a couple of, of recommendations as well. One is, um, I'm curious to know if either of you have read either of these, but one is A Thousand Splendid Sons by, I think it's pronounced Khalid Hosseini, author of Kite Runner and some other things. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it is really good. It's about, I mean, it's a story of, of uh, relationships amongst women in Afghanistan, but it's told over essentially like a 30 year period. So you, you sort of witness and experience uh, the, the oppression and war uh, in that region throughout their lifetime. It is a really, really, really powerful uh, book. I've actually, uh, you know, most people love Kite Runner. I, I actually was less interested in Kite Runner for some reason than I was this one. I just thought this book was incredible. Hmm. The other one, and Cliff, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, um, is uh, In the Garden of Beasts. It's not fiction. It's um, Eric Larson who did, you know, Devil in the White City, uh, as well as some other things. Have you read that, Cliff? I haven't. I know it, though. So, I mean, this is a book about uh, Nazi Germany and, and being in Berlin, I think he's in, yeah. the capital, right? the Third Reich. He's uh, the ambassador. Kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a story, the true story of, a, a, I think he's a college professor who becomes the ambassador to Germany in the lead up to World War II, sort of, and, you know, thinking of it as this ideal post and this great opportunity for him. And he sort of falls into it, I think, that there are others who were, I wish I could remember his name, others who were considered first and not, uh, not turned it down, I guess. And he thinks it's this wonderful opportunity and then is in the midst and in, in the thick of the, the rise of Hitler, essentially. And, um, but it's a really fascinating sort of look at things. And I, and I think the fact that it was a college professor who, who fell into this opportunity also resonated with me as well, but really mm -hmm. interesting stuff. Um, yeah, on that, there's, let me plug one more. This is not really a war novel either. Actually, I could go on forever here. So set me up when you're ready. But um, your description of uh, In the Garden of Beasts reminded me of Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night, um, which is an absolutely phenomenal novel. It's, it's one of his lesser known, I don't really know why, um, but it's about an American 
who uh, is a journalist, a you know, broadcaster or whatever. And uh, he's in uh, Berlin in the Third Reich and he ends up broadcasting for the Nazis and, and the CIA or the FBI, I guess it would have been at the time, recruits him to be a spy. And so he agrees to pretend to be this awful Nazi so he can continue broadcasting on the radio and give codes to the allies. Um, and then most of the novel though is about after the war. And after the war, he's now created this um, persona of who he is as this awful Nazi. Um, and the book is really about, you know, you are who you pretend to be. And it's a really interesting kind of psychological examination uh, of what happens when we kind of put on masks and pretend to be something we're not, uh, and what are the consequences uh, of that? I, I've taught that a couple of times. It's it's really a phenomenal, um, phenomenal novel. And of course, Vonnegut was a soldier. Um, I guess I have to plug um, Slaughterhouse Five now too, um, as one of the great war novels of of all time about um, the Second World War. But I'd highly recommend Vonnegut. Slaughterhouse Five is something, man. It's really it's a science fiction novel in its it own is. way. It's time tra time travel, or but it has one of the most beautiful passages in all of literature of a bombing told in reverse order. And I'll just leave it at that. Well, this we've got to wrap things up. But this conversation did not go where I was expecting it to. But I'm I'm glad it did because uh, it's, this has been fascinating, and I've got a great reading list uh, coming up. So. Um, Cliff, uh, your your Common Cause keynote coming up here in a, just a week or so from, from when we're putting this out there. So November 29th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. at Fort Howard Hall of the Widener Center. People can check that out and learn more about it by going to uwgb.edu slash common dash cause, that's C-A-H-S-S. You can also, uh, we're sharing it widely on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, letting people know uh, how to check that out. That and the rest of the conference, which you've got other talks at, you can follow at UWGBCAHSS on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram for more information about that. Um, people can find you by searching for Cliff Ganyard on Facebook and Twitter. Um, let's see, I am at anger professor in all of those places as well. Any final thoughts as we wrap things up, Cliff? I just really enjoy the time. This is really great. So thanks, Cliff. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. I could talk a lot longer about all of these topics. So let me know if you, if you want to continue the conversation sometime. And I'm really looking forward to the talk as part of Common Cause. Um, it'd be a, I don't know if it'll be fun, but it should be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah for people who didn't hear last week's episode, um, you know, Cliff's going to be talking about conspiracy theory, the history, uh, or how they've played a role in history and, and other sorts of things. So it is going to be really great. Uh, can't wait for it. So thank you so much for being here, Cliff. Thank you, Chuck. Cannonball is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Gleese, and our music was created by our very own Chuck Ryback. Special thanks also to our guest, Dr. Cliff Ganyard. 
If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out our past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Chuck Ryback. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.